I want you to think back to elementary school. Some of you are really athletic, and I'm sure in elementary school, the same was still true of you. Maybe you were the team captain of the football team or the baseball team or the soccer team. But did you ever have this experience in phys ed class where the teacher would say, okay, we're going to break the class up into two teams. Now, I wasn't the very athletic type. I'm still not. (laughs) But back then, those words, we're going to split the class up into two teams and somebody's going to pick their team. Those words would strike terror in my little nerdy heart because I knew it was coming and I knew that I would be the last woman standing, the last child standing. I'm the last person that um, you want on your baseball team or your football team or your soccer team. (laughs) Was then, is now, but that's okay. But do you remember that feeling? Either if you were the team captain and you had to pick out the best player and say, okay, this person, they're really good at kicking or this person, they have like a strong backswing. I'm gonna pick them. And then the person who's not very athletic Usually two of us left standing. We're like, oh, is it going to be me? Am I going to be last this time? Or are they going to be last? And you'd be picked last for the team. I, I That was my experience of phys ed class and many competitive sports. <laughs> but today I want to talk to you about how Jesus chose his team. And who were the people that he looked out to to pick first. And we're going to have a look at that today. So let's let's pray and then we'll head into the scripture and in today's word. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways that you have called us to be yours. I pray today that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hands to receive all that your spirit has for us today. Let us hear your voice calling out to us through the scripture and through the word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So today's scripture, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 19. And we're going to really zone in here and look at Jesus choosing his 12 apostles. So Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 19. Jesus went up on the mountainside, and he called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach. And to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanjeries, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So here we have Jesus calling his 12 disciples, his 12 apostles that we'll find later. So this word disciple, this word means learner in Greek. This is basically a student. This is an apprentice who has been called to follow Jesus. Now, in that society and in that context, you would have rabbis who were sought after by disciples. That is how it normally went. So students would come to a teacher, to come to a rabbi and say to them, I've heard so much about you. I've heard so much about your teaching. Can I follow you? Can I be known as one of your students? Can I listen to you teach? Can I learn from you? 
it would be like somebody in a trade today, somebody who's say an electrician and somebody comes up and they say, I'm going to school for this, but, but I need, I want to follow you around. Can I follow you from job to job to job and learn how, what you do with the wires, learn how you run your business. I, I want to learn all about that from you. And so you would apprentice underneath a master electrician. If that's some, a trade you wanted to learn. So if you think about that in today's society, this is basically what's happening here with the rabbi student model. You have a rabbi who's learned, who who went through all of Hebrew school, who excelled academically, who excelled um, to at memorization of the scripture, at expository preaching of the scriptures, who had an exemplary character that was well known. And students would flock around these rabbis and say, oh, I want to learn from you. And I'm the I'm a follower of this rabbi. Or I'm a follower of that rabbi in their school of thought. And so Jesus kind of flips this system on its head here. Instead of the students coming to Jesus, Jesus actually goes and chooses his students. It's so interesting. God is always taking the initiative, isn't he? It is not that we loved God, but that God loves loved us. Us. That's what John tells us. And so Jesus comes and he takes the initiative and he chooses these 12 disciples, these 12 students to come and learn, to learn from him, to follow him. He says, come follow me. We see him saying that to Peter and Andrew as they're, they're fishing with their father and they leave everything and their father and follow him. Same thing with James and John. And so Jesus is coming to them and calling to himself those who would be his learners, his disciples. Now we know these 12 also become his apostles. The word apostle means sent out one. So first they learn from him and then he sends them out to become his, his ambassadors, his emissaries, those who represent his name, those who carry his authority, those who have responsibility. And this is how the church starts. This is the inception of the church is these 12. And so this is a big job. These are the 12 disciples who are going to have to be great at learning, who are going to have to absorb all that Jesus is through teaching them, all that he's showing them. And they're going to have to be people who he can trust, right? People who he can trust with his heart, with his message, because they're going to be the apostles, the one he sends out, the ones who make whose DNA composes the beginning of the church. And so keep that in mind as we go through this list of people that he chose. And it'll make more sense how unbelievable Jesus's choices are to you when you keep that in mind, what he's about to do with them, who he's going to create them and mold them and make them to be when we, when we see that in context. And so what does Jesus do? The first thing Jesus does is he goes and he prays. It tells us in Luke chapter six, where it tell, it's the same narrative in Luke. Um, Luke chapter six, verses 12 to 16. One of those days, Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray and he spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. So he calls these learners to him that he's going to send out. That's the word apostle. And so what does he do? He spends all night praying. Jesus took this seriously. He wasn't just randomly choosing whoever was happened to be at the beach that day fishing. Like, oh, you look like a strong, able-bodied man. Why don't you follow me? <laughs> he didn't do this unintentionally. There was great intention and consideration and thought. There was prayer 
This was a conversation that he had with the father and he knew exactly who he was going to choose. And it makes it all the more strange and mysterious and wonderful (laughs) that he chooses the 12 that he does. And so back to Mark chapter three, Jesus went up on the mountainside and called to him those he wanted. He wanted these people. Now, that is such an important thing to say because let's start looking at who these people are. These people are not the wanted (laughs) of his society. These are not the disciples that you or I would pick if we were a rabbi in that day and age. And rabbis didn't pick, right? The students picked them. And so Jesus is intentionally picking these people and they have to think, why? Why would you want these people? These are the people society doesn't want. And let's, let's look at a couple of them here. So we have Matthew. Matthew is the tax collector. This is not a guy that anybody wants to be with. In fact, nobody wants to be with Matthew. Why? Because Matthew is a Jew who betrayed his own people to his oppressor. The Romans were oppressing the Jews financially, physically, with military might. In fact, this is the whole reason that the the Jews were longing and yearning for a Messiah to free them. A Messiah who had physical and and, um, military might. A a Messiah that they believe would overthrow the Romans who were oppressing them. That would allow them to be a free nation once again. And we have, here we have Matthew who's decided to betray his own people by siding with their oppressor. And so Rome had needed enforcers to, to collect the taxes. And so what does Matthew do? Matthew decides to be a tax collector. This is the most selfish of jobs in that day and age because what is he doing? He's only doing this job to benefit himself. He's intimidating his own people. He's collecting money off their backs, their last, their last paycheck, their last pennies that they could feed their family with. He's taking them and he's giving them to the enemy. Imagine a foreign power takes over Canada and then your friend who you went, you know, you grew up in, 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 in elementary school with and in middle school with, you know, this is a friend you knew for a long time. All of a sudden he, he starts working for this foreign power and then he starts taking money from you and giving it to this foreign power. Not only that, tax collectors were notorious in that time for taking more than was required. So say your tax bill was $1,000 and that's what you had to pay, pay Rome in, in their currency. But instead he takes 1500 and he pockets that extra 500 for himself. So he becomes an oppressor in his own right. Nobody liked tax collectors. I mean, we're not too fond of, I guess, the CRA <laughs> in our day. The tax collectors, no offense if anybody watching this is a tax collector. But, you know, it's not a pleasant thing to have to pay taxes in the sense of taking part of your pay, watching part of your paycheck go <laughs> to the government. It's not a pleasant feeling, but back then it was a totally different experience. This was an experience of being betrayed by one of your own. This was an experience of being abused and used by one of your own. And so Matthew is isolated in between the oppressor that he's serving and the people he's betrayed. This is not somebody you want at your Thanksgiving table. This is not somebody you want to invite over for for an afternoon tea. This is somebody you ignore 
at all costs. This is somebody you spit at when you see them on the street. This is somebody whose parents would not be proud to tell people what their little son Matthew is doing. And yet Matthew is one of the 12 that Jesus chooses. He chooses the unwanted and the unlovable. And he wants them and he loves them. He chooses those who seem to have gone too far and he draws them to himself. Isn't that a beautiful gift? Isn't that a wonderful mystery? Isn't that scandalous grace? And Matthew's just one out of this list of 12. And we're going to go look at, look at some more of them. But what does he do? He called to them those he wanted. Why would he want the unwanted? I'm so glad he does because he wants me and he wants you. And he calls us to himself. And maybe we're not in a position like Matthew. We all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We all have areas of our life where we have been rejected or we have rejected others, where we have been betrayed or we are the betrayer. And these things do not disqualify us from God wanting us, from God calling us. He goes out to the outcast. He goes out to those on the margins of society and he calls them to himself. He says, he appointed the 12 that they might be with him. I love that the first thing he calls the 12 for is that they might be with him. Sometimes we think we become Christians because we're going to do things for God. Okay, God, like you handled the salvation part. Thank you. But I'll take it from here with the sanctification and I'll take it from here with the mission, God. And sometimes like in Galatian, Paul says, you foolish Galatians. You started with the spirit and now you're trying to continue with the flesh? No, this is of God. This is what God has started, what God has done. We have to continue in the spirit and not try to do things on our own. And so when we come to God, we have to trust him, not just for our salvation, but for our sanctification, for that purging of our sin, for that um, that glorification of, of himself through us and for mission, for what he's called us to do. And we'll see that he also sends them out. But first, the being with him precedes it all. Have you ever spent so much time with a person that you start to develop their mannerisms? Or maybe you start to say little phrases that they say all the time. You think, oh, I never used to say that, but now I'm starting to say that thing. You pick up little, um, little idiosyncrasies of the person you spend a lot of time with. I know when you when you get married, all of a sudden, you know, you start to have this language between you and your spouse. You have these inside jokes. You have these looks that you can give and the other person knows exactly what you mean. You start to become more like the people you live with. You start to become more like them because you're spending so much time with them. And if we want to become more like Christ, we need to spend time with him. We need to be with him. Sometimes we don't think God likes us. Sometimes we think God, you know, he loves me because he's God and he has to, he's love, right? But what if he doesn't like me? In this passage, we see that Jesus calls these men because he wants to be with them. Not only because he loves them. John three sixteen, we know it well, right? God so loved, so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He so loved the world. He so loves you. He so loves me. He loves your company. He 
wants to be with you. He wants you to be with him because he also knows this. Unless we be with him, we can never do for him. <laughs> and we can never do with him. It is this relationship that needs to have primary place in our life, that needs to have primary place in our heart. That all that we do for and with God, that, that comes from being with him. So he called them that he might be with them. And then it says, and that he might send them out to preach. And to have authority to drive out demons. So now they're going to do the work, but the work that they do can never take precedence over the time that they be with him. We think of John 15 and the vine and the branches. We can do nothing apart from him. We are like a simple branch coming out of this vine that we have no, no purpose. We have no power on our own. We need to stay connected to the vine in order to be fruitful. And once we do, then his life flows through us and we become fruitful. When we are with him, when we stay and remain in him, as John 15, Jesus calls us to do, that's when we bear fruit. Be must always precede the do. And so he calls them that he might be with them. And again, let's look at this. Is this because they're so great? These are such wonderful men. These are the, the best status. No, these are the low of the low. And let's, let's talk about um, two more here. So we got Peter, <laughs> Simon, who he calls Peter, and his brother, Andrew. Let's talk about them for a moment, shall we? So we see when, we, when, they, when Jesus calls them, we see them fishing. This tells us something about, him, about them. If, if they're fishing and the sons of Zebedee, same thing, they're fishing with their father, then that means they had to learn an, apprent an apprenticeship. They had to learn their father's trade. Why? Because they weren't academic enough or intellectual enough or smart enough to pass through all the echelons of Hebrew school and become students of a rabbi or be, even become a rabbi themselves. They had not passed through all these levels. So you would start in Hebrew school, maybe around the age of five. If you were a male in that society, you'd have to start learning um, certain passages of scripture that were important. And then eventually memorize the, the first five books of the Torah. And then eventually the Old Testament. And and if you failed out <laughs> at any point, you were going to have to find work of, of some other kind. You were going to have to, as in their case, learn how to fish, learn how to feed your family in some other way. And so what does this tell us about Andrew? And what does this tell us about Peter and about James and, and John? That they weren't the upper intellectuals of society. They weren't the grade aid students. Definitely not. And yet Jesus, when he's choosing those who will follow him, choosing those who will represent him, he decides to visit those who are just common people who are just learning the trade. There's nothing special about them. There's nothing high status about them. They're just living paycheck to paycheck, meal to meal, find a fish, feed, feed your family. They're... There's nothing about them that would make any other rabbi interested. They're those who are left last on the field to be picked for the team. And yet Jesus picks them. Let's zone in on Peter in particular, shall we? His name used to be Simon, like a, like a weed that kind of, his name means a weed that kind of bounces in the wind, back and forth, wishy-washy. And Jesus calls him Peter. But we see this wishy-washy characteristic in Peter all the way up until the day of Pentecost. We see him walking on the water. He's bold and he's impetuous and he has a lot of courage, doesn't he? 
He steps out of the boat when he sees Jesus walking by. And he says, if that's you, call to me and I'll come to you. And he does. And he has his eyes on Jesus for just a millisecond until he starts to get his eyes on the waves and the storm. And he, and he begins to fall in and Jesus pulls him up. So he starts headed in the right direction. And then, oh, poor Peter, wishy-washy like those waves. Then we see Peter in um, th- these moments where he says, oh, Jesus says to his disciples, who, who do you say that I am? And he says, oh, you're the Christ, the risen God, the Lord. And he says, that was not revealed to you by men, but by God. And he, that's when he calls him Peter. You are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. And Peter must've been feeling really good about himself. Yes, I got it. None of the other disciples got the answer. You know, I, I didn't maybe make it all the way through Hebrew school, but I got the answer right when it mattered. And then what happens, Jesus tells them about how he's going to have to die and suffer at the hands of men. And Peter says, oh, oh no, Lord forbid that. And Jesus turns around to the same Peter who just got the answer right. He just got an A plus and now he gets an F. (laughs) And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And so Peter goes from from side to side, wishy-washy. And again, one of the most uh, poignant moments of Peter's life, we see him. After he, at the last supper, he says, Jesus, I will always stay with you. I will never deny you. It won't be me. I won't betray you ever. Maybe all these other guys will, but I got the stuff, Jesus. And we see him at a charcoal fire. And who comes to him? Not a scary Roman soldier, not even a Pharisee or a religious teacher of the law, but a little maid comes to him at the fire and says to him, hey, I know you. You're one of his followers, aren't you? You're one of Jesus's disciples, aren't you? And Peter, who wanted to be this grade eight student, he says, no, I don't know the man. He says it three times. He denies his savior. He denies his Lord. He denies his rabbi, even knowing him. And we see Peter again, tossed by the waves, wishy-washy Peter. We see Jesus. What does he do? Jesus chooses him over and over and over again. Jesus, after the resurrection, meets him on a beach by another charcoal fire. I had a professor once who said, perhaps why he was at a charcoal fire is because often smell is one of the the greatest memory unlockers for us. And in, in cases of trauma, it's those smells that bring us back to those places. And so the smell of charcoal fire might remind Peter of the last time he was at a charcoal fire when he denied Jesus three times and Jesus comes to him at this beach by another charcoal fire and says to him, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Three times he asks him. He gives him a chance to undo what he's done. He gives him a chance to see that he is loved, that he is chosen, that he is wanted, that even though Peter fell asleep on Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And even though Peter denies Jesus in his darkest moments, that Jesus still wants to be with him and still chooses him and still calls him. And we know ultimately, Peter, we see him when the Holy Spirit fills him, how bold he becomes, how solid he becomes. 5,000 are added to the church's number on that first day because of Peter because of his obedience, because of this, his boldness and the sermon that he preaches. Let's look, let's look, shall we, at some more of these names and see 
why would Jesus choose these people? Because you know what the question we're always asking is, why, Jesus, would you choose me? I'm aware of my own sins. I'm aware of my own faults. I too, like Peter, can can make bold confessions of faith, but sometimes my behavior is lagging behind. Sometimes we have these contradictions that we live in our life. There's these places that God's light has not touched in us. There's these unhealed parts of our soul. There's these hypocritical parts of us, these pharisaical parts, these judgmental parts of us. There's these parts of us that have, are insecure and have low self-esteem and don't see ourselves the way God does. But God chooses us anyway, not because we're so wonderful, but because he is. I love how 1 Corinthians puts this. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 31. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world, the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Christ has called you to learn from him, to be his disciple. Christ has called you to be sent out on his behalf and to serve and to love others with his power and his authority. But it is not because we are influential. It is not because we are so wise. It is not because we are so holy or perfect or good. It is because of him. It is because of his great grace and his wonderful love that knows no bounds, that chooses what is foolish and chooses what is weak. So he can put his wisdom and he can put his power on display. And that's what our lives are meant to do, just like these 12 disciples' lives did. Let's look at just a quick overview of just a couple more here. We have Simon the Zealot. So Simon, he was basically, if you think about it in modern day terms, people, some people say it's like a modern day terrorist. He was a trained assassin. He belonged to this group that would hide up in the rocks and was training to be able to militarily overthrow the Romans to kill them, to assassinate them in order to to spur on the Messiah to come, to spur on this new age of freedom for the Jews. And so here we have a man who is a trained murderer, who would have murder in his heart, if not in his hands, even though they try to keep themselves pure and clean and holy from and separate from everybody else. It was because they wanted to, to be able to militarily take over from the oppressors. So we have this, this Simon the Zealot, (laughs) who has become part of this group with Matthew, the tax collector, who's working for the Romans. So Simon hates the Romans. Matthew's, um, you know, working for them and with the Romans. And so what a group, what a group to put together if you think about it. And you have um, James and John and it says, it says here, they were called, nicknamed the sons of thunder. So there's the story about as they're walking through Samaria, the Samaritans are rejecting Jesus. Now the Samaritans, we know from the Samaritan woman at the well, this history, you know, they were considered the half breeds. 
half Jewish, half something else. They believed that you worship somewhere else and the Jews believed. And so many Jews despised the Samaritans and many Samaritans despised Jews. So they weren't receiving Jesus. And what did James and John suggest to do? Hey, Rabbi, why don't we call down fire from heaven? Why don't we call down thunder on these people and destroy them? And Jesus is like, you don't know what you're asking here. No, this is not the spirit of my father that you're speaking for. And so they get this like silly nickname called Sons of Thunder because they're they're ready to be like, okay, call down fire, Jesus. Show us what you got. They're racist about the Samaritans. They're like, we're ready to kill them. We're, we're, we, we don't like these people. We hate them. They don't belong to us. And so you have this crazy mixed up group of sinners, crazy mixed up group of misfits. And this is who Jesus calls. And you look at Thomas. Thomas, he gets that word, the doubtful. He's a skeptic. He's the one where they, when, when they're going to go raise Lazarus from the dead, he's like, let's go there. Last time they were going to kill Jesus. We might as well die with him, right? And Mr. Pessimism here, when Jesus is coming back with his resurrected body, he's like, hey, I'm not going to believe it until I touch his hand holes. You know, I put my hand there where he's been wounded. I'm not going to believe it. Mr. Skepticism, this is the man Jesus cho- chooses And of course, you have Judas Iscariot, the one who's ultimately going to betray him. And yet Jesus chooses to spend his time there. He chooses to pour out his time on these 12 guys, including the one who's going to betray him, including the one who helps himself to, to the money bag, including the one who will get him ultimately killed by his betrayal for 30 coins of silver. And yet Jesus pours his life out for him day by day. He, he chooses to waste his time teaching him <laughs> in that sense. We would say never. If I even had an inkling someone was going to betray me or stab me in the back or do what Judas did to Jesus, why would I spend three years with this person? Why would I choose this person to be among, among my intimate followers? Clearly this man has no character. And yet Jesus still loved him. And yet Jesus still called him to be with him. He still gave him the opportunity to choose. Now, yes, we know Judas chose poorly, but Jesus still chose him. Hmm. Are there areas in our life where we're like any of these? You know, we didn't get to everybody. Some of them are more well-known than others. Some of them are just a line like Thaddeus. Nobody knows anything about this guy. (laughs) Maybe you feel like him, unknown, and how could God want me? Like, nobody knows who I am. I'm not special. I'm, I'm nothing. I don't matter. Jesus knew him. He mattered to him. He called him to be part of his 12. I love what Preston Sprinkle says in Caris, God's scandalous grace for us. Quote, Jesus planted the first church on earth with a group of hoodlums who wouldn't be let inside the doors of most churches today. This group of hoodlums that wouldn't be welcome inside the church today was the beginning and the inception of the first church. Luke 7 verse 34 tells us that the people often accuse Jesus of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Not a friend to tax collectors and sinners, but of. So the tax collectors and sinners would point to Jesus and say, hey, that's Jesus, my friend. Jesus doesn't look at you through the lens of your disqualifications. (laughs) He doesn't look at me through a litany of all the things that I don't have to measure up to him. 
He's not basing his decision on me at all. God is love. It is who he is. It is his essence. It is not just something he merely does, but he is love. And when he comes to choose his 12, when he comes to call and to choose us today, he doesn't see us based on what we have done or haven't done. He looks at us through love, a love that covers over a multitude of wrongs, a love that can reshape and and change the very essence of our being to be more like him. You may be deeply aware of your flaws and faults, and yet we're still not even as deeply aware as we ought to be. I know myself included here. And yet he chooses me, and yet he chooses you, and yet he calls us to be with him and to be like him, and in doing so, be sent out on his behalf for him. So wherever you find yourself today, however you've viewed yourself, know that he loves you and he calls you to himself. Will you follow him? Let's pray. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you for calling us. Thank you for choosing us because of who you are. Thank you for taking the initiative to call us and then to change us and to make us more like you. I pray that we would follow you, that we would hear that call and we would say, yes, Lord, I will follow you. In your name we pray.